We are in Revelation chapter 21, if you want to turn there. We're considering just the first eight verses this morning. Next week we will complete the chapter, then a couple of more weeks to finish out the book. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, the Word of God says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. We trust that your Holy Spirit has given understanding and will continue to as we study this word together. Lord, may your words be clear to us this morning and may your Holy Spirit have free reign to operate in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So the new heaven and the new earth. This is gonna be our home. I'd like to ask you a question as we begin this morning. What is home to you? When you think of home, what comes to your mind? You know, across the many cultures, what home means to people has different definitions, but I think there are probably some commonalities that we share, at least here in the U.S. We have these sayings such as, home is where the heart is. We know that when we move into a a physical location, whether it's an apartment or a house we own or maybe some kind of a temporary situation, it's not the dwelling itself, the house itself, the structure that makes it a home. It's the people. And so a house is just a house until there are people in it. Then it becomes a home. Some have said a home is where you make memories together. Some of us spend all of our lives building a home whether it be a physical home, our dream home, whether it be our ideal home inside the home, you know, decorating and all of that. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, but here's the issue as we come to Revelation 21. The issue is, are we making this world our home or are we preparing ourselves for the next world which today is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 21? As you think of this verse here that we've just read, uh, verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Now if I could 
get you to stop and to think for a moment going all the way back to chapter 1 of the book of Revelation and just walk you through, uh, you know, at least in your mind, all of the things that have happened in the book of Revelation, but particularly as it relates to heaven. And especially as we think of chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Revelation as it has described to us the throne room of God, the very presence of God himself. And we think about what it's like there where there's constant 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week if there is such a thing as time there, which there isn't, where there's worship happening, where the elders and the living creatures are forever before the throne of God and whatever they have as rewards, we are told that they cast their crowns on the glassy sea around the throne of God. And whatever we think of as worship on this earth, uh, certainly musical worship is a part of that, but of course we worship God with our lives. We worship God with everything that we do. And of course the Apostle Paul tells us that whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than unto man. You know, we are not to get caught up into serving an earthly master. We have a heavenly father who outranks any earthly master that we have. And we are told that God has put everyone in authority over us. So if you have a boss, if you have a government, if you have rulers and leaders, God has divinely allowed those people to be over you. And so we serve them as we are serving the Lord. And so now as we think about what it's like to be in heaven... And we began to get a glimpse of this last week as we consider the thousand-year or millennial reign of Christ. But even that was not heaven on earth. That was just a foretaste of glory divine. Here I saw a new heaven and a new earth. John was given this heavenly vision. And I would like to ask you this morning, what are eyes and vision truly made for? Is it made for the wonders of this world? We are living right now in a wonderful time of the year. We have peak foliage. It is absolutely gorgeous out there. It's one of the best we've had in years. But is that what our eyes have truly meant to see? Or have they been created and invented by God so that we might see him? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote these words, But as it is written, Eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. You know, we are strangers, pilgrims, and aliens here on this earth. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told these words concerning those who died in faith, uh, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, they were assured of them. They embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Can we agree this morning that this world is not our home? We're just passing through. These words were written by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter. At the very end, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly or darkly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And in 1 John 3, the Spirit penned these words, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, in Revelation 21, we enter the eternal kingdom. We enter the heavenly kingdom. We enter life as it was truly meant to be. Some have called this paradise regained or paradise reborn. This is the new heavens and the new earth. New means not, not just like we know we build a new house, but fresh, new in character, not recent or new in time. This isn't just the next place, like when you move from one house to the next. It is the best place. It is the better place for us. You see, this is what we are, were saved for, and this is what we were saved unto, to be in the kingdom of God forever and ever and ever. You see, God desires that we be with him and be in his presence, and he's going to talk about that in a few verses, but also, heaven is a place. It's a destination. There is nothing on this earth that we can truly call a destination, we are just passing through, just like walking down a hallway or driving on a road. We are just driving through on our way to heaven. This is what we were saved for. This is what we were saved unto. If you would consider with me for a moment, in the book of Genesis chapter 1, the heavens and the earth were created. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 1, a new heavens and a new earth has been created. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 16, the sun was created. And in Revelation 21, 23, there's no need of the sun. For the Lamb of God himself is the sun. In Genesis chapter 1, the night was established. In Revelation 22, there will be no night. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 10, the seas were created. We are told here in verse 1, there's no more seas. Sorry if you're a fisherman or a sailor. In Revelation, excuse me, Genesis chapter 3, the curse was announced because of the sin of man. In Revelation 22, verse 3, there's no more curse. In Genesis 3, death enters history. In Revelation 21, verse 4, we are told there's no more death. And in Genesis chapter 3, we saw man driven from the tree, driven from paradise, driven from the garden. But in Revelation 22, man is restored to paradise as God has intended us to live. And in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, sorrow and pain are introduced into the human existence. But in Revelation 21, 4, we are told there are no more tears, there's no more pain. God said in Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create a Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people as a joy. In Psalm 102, we're told, Of old, God, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, all of them will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And remember, we read last week in Second Peter chapter 3 that we are to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. 
because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this first heaven, this first earth, as we know it, passes away. And it's interesting in in looking at the word heaven here, the word heaven used in this passage as we're studying it today is always referring to what we know as the sky or the atmosphere. But when he talks about creating a new heavens and a new earth, he's talking about not just the sky and the atmosphere, but what we're going to know truly as heaven, the place where God dwells. And then he says here in verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God has a model in heaven, it seems, for everything. When we study in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and then, of course, he patterned that and made the the temple, we are told that these were heavenly patterns. These are things created already in heaven, and the things that we have on earth are merely images of the things in heaven. And as wonderful as they are, they are imperfect because these are not the heavenly version of what the Lord wants to reveal to us. And so John is allowed here to see in this vision the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This reminds me of when Peter was on the rooftop there in Acts chapter 10, waiting upon the Lord and getting a little sleepy as Peter often did. And the Lord revealed to him that sheet coming down, and he revealed to him his glory through all of the creatures that the Jews understood were unclean. But as he spoke to Peter, he said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. For these things that I have called clean, you must not call unclean. And as God gives these visions to his servants, to the prophets and the apostles, he allows them to see a heavenly vision. He allows them to see things as they truly are. And I believe today, personally, side note, that God still gives visions and dreams. They're not on the level of Scripture, obviously, but I think God often will allow us to see things, and if we will be faithful to read His Word and to put it into our minds and allow Him to speak to our hearts, I believe God will use these things to remind us of who He is and of what He has prepared for us. You know, we haven't mentioned this for a while in our study of the book of Revelation, but early on we mentioned what's called the heptatic structure or the the sevens, the number of times seven things or the number seven appears in John's writings in particular um, and in the book of Revelation. Here, seven things are revealed to be true in the eternal state or the new heaven. First of all, there is a new heaven in verse one. There's a new earth. There's a new Jerusalem. In verse 5, there's a new world order. In verse 22, there's a new temple. In verse 23, there's a new light. And in uh, chapter 22, there is a new paradise. Those are seven things that are new to us. And it's interesting here, John says that this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. We're told in the, the rest of the passage, which we'll get to next week, that this bride is related to the bride of Christ. It's related to the church. So we'll get that to that next week. But in verse three, he says, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, 
The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. Haven't we heard this before somewhere? In John chapter 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That Jesus himself, Jesus incarnate, the Son of God become flesh, came to dwell with man. And in that situation, during that time, Jesus came for a period of about three years. Of course, he lived longer than that, but his ministry, as we understood it, as he was revealed to us, was about three, three and a half years long. And Jesus' ministry, of course, was localized. It was there to a group of people in a certain region of the world for a period of time. But here, in the new heaven and the new earth, the tabernacle of God, and this is not just when Jesus became flesh to manifest the presence of God to us, but here, the tabernacle of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is with men. This will be the first time that we will have seen, really, the fullness of God dwelling with men. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. Now, we have these amazing verses in Scripture where uh, the Lord Jesus said, you know, or or God said through uh, the writers of Scripture, for I will never leave you or forsake you, where Jesus prayed in in the upper room there, the upper room discourse where he said, you know, I must go away so that the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, can come, and when he comes, he will be now the presence of God with you. And so God has given all throughout Scripture, if we, we could do a whole study on what it means that God is with us, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but here we, we're being given a picture that God will dwell with them. This is what God has always wanted, to be with us. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it ought to blow your mind. It ought to be one of those moments that God wants to dwell with us. Now, a lot of us struggle with these feelings of inadequacy, right, of selfishness, but also of kind of this woe is me, or we get down on ourselves, and it happens to all of us. It can be personality type, but, you know, we all go through these things, But I want to encourage you this morning with verse 3. God wants to dwell with you. God loves you. You've heard that before, but don't let those be idle words this morning. God loves you. He's gone to such trouble, to such great lengths, to send his son to die on the cross for our sins so that the way might be paved, that we would have a relationship with God the Father. And now in this moment in Revelation 21.3, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God will be with men. It will finally be realized. There's a lot of things we don't understand. You know, we're told that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for us as believers. Uh, As I'm understanding scripture as we go through the book of Revelation, we won't immediately be in this place. This will be a place at the end of the age where the new heavens and the new earth, the new eternal kingdom is ushered in. And at that moment, all of us who are believers who are forever in his presence will be ushered into this new kingdom, this new realm together. So what does it mean that when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord? I don't know, but it's glorious and it's better than here, so I'm not trying to figure it out. It's just way better than here. 
But it's interesting that this is the dwelling place. It's the presence of God. It is the blessing and the fellowship of being with God. We will be his people. He will be our God. And in Isaiah chapter 9, where we are uh, foretold or foreshadowed of the coming of the Messiah, it, it said that his name would be called Emmanuel, and we are told that his name means God with us. Here in Revelation 21, verse 3, God will be with us. We shall be his people. He shall be our God. And notice what happens in the presence of God in verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I assume everybody in this room has cried at least one tear. Some of us many. Have you ever had the intimate and pleasurable moment where someone touched your face and wiped away the tear from your eye? This is what God will do. This is how much he loves us. There shall be no more death nor sorrow. nor crying there shall be no more pain I long for for that day we all long for that day to be with him unashamed No more sin, no more disappointment, no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. In his presence, no tears, no regrets in his presence. It'll be under the blood, and we will no longer think of our sin. We will no longer be hurt by the hurt that we've inflicted on others. And God will be God. And we will just be his people. The former things have passed away. God is not repairing heaven and earth. He's creating a new place. He's not just fixing something that's broken. He's making all things new. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. These words are dependable. This is the truth. This is where we're headed. And we need to remember that the destination is better than the journey. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Of course, Jesus told us this in the beginning, didn't he, in chapter one? 
He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In the Lord, everything is summed up. In the Lord, there's no more questions. If we can understand and keep ourselves in the grace of God and keep ourselves focused on the word of God, on the truth of God, and not get caught up in and have this world swallow us up. The madness of the news, the craziness going on in our world around us between wildfires and political unrest and tension in the Middle East, and sometimes I wonder the last week if the fuse hasn't been lit in the Middle East. And yet God is making all things new. He's going to make all things new. And he said it is done. You know, we are told in the book of Romans, speaking of Abraham, said that God calls those things that are not as though they are. And I believe that word is specifically given to us so that we will remember that the promises of God are yes and amen. They are faithful and true. And when we are going through something and we can't make sense of it and we open his word and those words speak to us, we need to remember that this is the word of God. And that one day, Revelation 21 is going to happen. A few weeks ago, I stood here and I said, do you believe that this is true and that this is real? You see, we make the mistake of thinking that what we're living in right now is reality. This is reality. This is where we're headed. So this world is not our home. I'll say it again. This world is not our home. This is not our destination. Our destination is here. It's heaven. It's in the very presence of God. And when he says here, it is done, it reminds us of two other times in Scripture where God said a similar thing. On the cross, you remember, Jesus said in John 19, as he cried out, he said, it is finished. And then back in uh, Revelation 16 at the Battle of Armageddon, the Lord said, uh, the seventh seal, excuse me, the seventh angel poured out his bowl and, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. God mentioning that he's set something in motion that was irrevocable. And here at the dawn of eternity, at the dawn of this new world order, he says, it is done. I mean, all things are summed up at this point, and there's still more to come, uh, as we'll see in the next two or three weeks as we finish this book. But he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We need to remember that. We need to remember when we are in the middle of something that makes no sense. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he says, and I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Do you remember when Jesus encountered the woman at the well? John chapter 4. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You see, that's what we do, right? We look at our physical resources and say, I got nothing. You've got nothing. And Jesus says, um, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Do you ever feel like 
that well, that spring of living water is dried up in your life? I do sometimes. I'm sad to admit it. But then later in John chapter 7, he said on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, uh, whoever is thirsty, let him come to me and, and drink of that living water. And he says, torrents or gushes of living water shall pour forth from his very being. This was also foretold in Isaiah 55, which says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. The fountain of living water, Jesus says here, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You see, there's the gospel in a nutshell, isn't it? When we realize as we come to Christ that we have no resources. We are wholly inadequate in ourselves. We have nothing. We are bankrupt. We are bankrupt spiritually, morally, mentally, even physically. And even though the world holds up specimens of human beings who are ripped and have six packs and can do anything and leap tall buildings in a single bound and all of those things, that's not real. Heaven is real. It is done. The beginning and the end said to us, I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let me just ask you this morning, even though you're Christians, I hope, hope you all are, but if not, we'll give you an opportunity. Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for he shall be filled. Come to this water, this fountain of living water, and receive freely from the Lord Jesus Christ. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. That should be another Because we are told throughout the New Testament that if we are in Christ, that we will become heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Paul tells us this in Romans, and this is just repeated to us all throughout the New Testament. Now, if someone, you know, we all dream about that rich uncle, right? Someone who might die, and for some reason they loved you and chose you and decided to leave you this massive fortune. But that never happens, right? Not yet. (laughs) All right. Well, if it happens, give me a call. But he who overcomes shall inherit all things. Remember the seven letters to the seven churches? Jesus promised all sorts of things to those who would overcome. And without going back and going through all of those things, the message is essentially this. Persevere. Stay the course. Do those things that are right. Be true to the Lord. Press into the Lord. Seek his face. Don't give up. I don't know about you, but I'm tempted all the time to give up. But he who overcomes shall inherit all things. If we will just persevere and stay the course with the Lord, in the end there is a greater reward than we can possibly imagine. 
we will inherit all things along with Christ. What does that mean? I don't know anybody who can explain that. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. You know, the, the parable of the prodigal son was given to us as a snippet, like a, when the door cracks in a dark room and it lets a little ray of light in. And we understand that God desires to give us everything. Not just eternal life, which would be enough. Not just grace, which is enough. Not just mercy, which is more than enough. Not just love, but everything. He freely gives us all things. Our inheritance is greater than anything any of us can possibly imagine. We are going to be so wealthy in the presence of God that whatever we think of as wealth and, and, and comfort on, on this earth and in this life will mean nothing. It will pale in comparison. It will be like nothing. We'll, we'll, we'll look back on this life and think, why did I even bother with the things that I pursued? He who overcomes shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son or my daughter. Forever in the presence of God. Listen, if you need a shot in the arm, if you get discouraged, I want to encourage you, turn to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, and read it. And remind yourself of your destiny. Remind yourself of where we're headed. But, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And he says it again before the end to remind us that no, not everybody will be in heaven. And we've already seen this in the last few weeks, haven't we? But he's reminding us here again that there is a standard for heaven. You know what that standard is? Holy perfection. So how is it that you and I get there? How is it that those who believe in Christ get there? It's for that very reason. It's by believing in Christ. One day somebody came to Jesus and said, God uh, or Jesus, what, what, what must we do to work the works of God? And he says, believe on me. Faith. Believing in Christ. Receiving the fact, the truth of who Jesus is. And in that moment, repenting and turning from our thinking, which all people think, that I'm okay. I got this figured out. Or maybe they think, I've got time. I'll figure this out sometime before the end of my life. Or maybe they think there's many roads that lead to God and one of them will get me there. But this is telling us that there is a holy standard. And that holy standard is the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from all sin. You see, it's so simple, a child can understand it. But as you and I both know, and Siri's talking to me. Sorry. But as you and I both know, there are so many people who can't see it. They can't understand it. it it's a blind truth to them. And that's something I don't understand because when you tell them, when you speak the words of truth to them, when you read scripture to them and they go, nope, not for me, I don't believe it. It breaks our hearts. But here, this holy standard, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers in the list. It might surprise you to know what it means here by cowardly. 
Now these are all people, of course. This is a category of people who have rejected Christ. So although as I read this list, some of these sins might describe some of us as we have committed sins, uh, I want to summarize up front that this doesn't mean that any who have committed these sins are going to be in hell, but it means if we have lived our life with an unrepentant and an unconverted heart, and that has become our practice and our habit, and this is the way we think, then yes, this will be our end. But this list of sins actually is very interesting. The scriptures have so many different lists of sins, and there are commonalities, but this, this first one here, cowardly, fearful, timid, faithless, small-souled, little-spirited. Any of us as Christians have that problem? Any of us as Christians could fall into the category of cowardly? I mean, if it weren't for fear, the psychologists would have no jobs because so much of their counsel deals with people who live in fear of someone or something because of bad parenting, because of a bad experience, because of post-traumatic stress, because of horrible and awful things that have happened. They live their lives in fear. And I'm not talking about personality types. I'm talking about living with fear. The antonym, and it was interesting, one of the Bible commentators pointed this out, the antonym of cowardly is daring and full of faith. You see, we as Christians are to be daring and full of faith. This should be who we are. It has nothing to do with your personality type. It has everything to do with having faith. And so the words of timid, fearful, faithless, small-souled, little-spirited, if these describe any of us, I think this is a point of repentance for us. And to pray and to ask God to give us a bold faith. Do you remember in Acts chapter 4 and 5 when the disciples were ministering there and they had gotten beaten and they considered themselves, you know, blessed and worthy to be beaten in the name of Christ and they went and they got into the, the prayer room with a bunch of people and as they prayed there in that holy place, what did they pray? God, please give us strength. Please give us courage to go back out and do it again. You see, Satan wants to use fear, it's one of his tactics, to intimidate us and to cause us to think that if we break man's rule and we do this or that and we offend people and we violate the politically correct code which has been inundated on us today, that you know, something bad's gonna happen to us. And certainly it might. But we are not violating God's laws. We are violating man's laws that are evil. And we should be free and courageous to speak the word of God whenever and wherever the Holy Spirit says speak it. And to not be fearful, to not be cowardly, we are to be daring and full of faith. And I just think this morning that, you know, I'm, I'm not a weird person, I hope, but I just think this is a word from the Lord, that we need to be fearful unbelieving, those who don't believe the gospel and they don't trust God. The abominable, listen to this, detestable, abhorrent, foul, stench, disgusting, polluted with crimes, people who are so offensive you have to turn away from them. Murderers, those who commit homicide or kill other people, of course. 
the sexually immoral. This is an interesting one. Uh, the King James calls it whoremongers. The word pornos is used, and it's a man. And it's interesting, all of the, the Bible dictionaries defined it this way. A man who prostitutes his body for hire for unlawful sexual intercourse. And I find that interesting, and here's what I think about that. This is my free comment today. I believe God wants men to lead according to a godly standard. And when the men of the world, both godly and ungodly, do ungodly things, and when they walk in ungodly ways, and they set an ungodly standard and a pattern, I believe this violates the pattern that God laid down. He created Adam first, and then he created Eve. That's not a uh, a chauvinistic thing is just the way God did it. Paul makes this argument several times in his epistles. It's not men are better than women or anything like that. He makes that abundantly clear. He simply says there's a standard and he wants men to lead. Men, we are to rise up and lead. This is a word for you this morning. Stand up and lead. Don't be a coward. Be full of faith. Do what God says. Sorcerers, pharmacias, drugs, spells, potions, poisoners, magicians, those who use or prepare magical remedies and enchanter. That's a wide spectrum of things. Idolaters, those who worship images. And it's interesting, um, Thayer brought this out, a covetous man is a worshiper of mammon, which is riches or wealth. This is something we get caught up in a large way in our American culture. And then he says, all liars. And I find it interesting that he said that here. He didn't just say liars. He says all liars. As if we need to make sure they're all included. Untrue, deceitful, and false. You know, you listen to the news right now. I can't make sense of anything. I don't know who's telling the truth and who isn't. Can you? I have no idea what's going on. Jesus said in Matthew 12, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Any word who speaks a word, excuse me, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Verse 8 speaks of those people who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That means they've rejected the work of God in their lives. They have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in drawing men to righteousness. Jesus told us that the Holy Spirit speaks of righteousness and judgment and sin, and his purpose is to draw men to Christ. The Holy Spirit always testifies of Christ. And Jesus says, hey, you can speak ill of me, but if you speak against the Holy Spirit, if you resist the very work of God through the person of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you reject me, and you harden your heart against me, you will be in the category of Revelation 21, verse 8. And so he's making it clear that there is a divine holy standard. And that holy standard is godless, excuse me, uh, sinless perfection. And the only way any person can achieve sinless perfection is not by works, but it's by grace. It's by the blood of Christ. There's only one way. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so we don't want to be in the category of those 
who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. We want to be in the category of those who believe and receive and walk in faith and have believed the truth. We want to be in that place where all things are made new. And I long for that day. And I imagine that you, like me, if you were teaching this and you got to verse 4, and I didn't know what was going to happen this morning when I got to verse 4, but, you know, just thinking about this, I just, I want to be free of this sin, of this body, of this world. Not an escapist mentality. I just want to be where God created for me to be. I want to be in the place where God made for me. You know, I just want to be in his presence. And that's the place that we all ought to want to be. That's what we ought to desire more than anything. But in the meantime, along the way, let's take as many with us as we can. Amen. Lord Jesus, we love you. We bless your holy name. We are here today for you. We thank you for the word that you've given us, Lord. May it encourage us. May it build us up. May it strengthen us. May it embolden us and cause us to take a stand for the cause of Christ in a way that we never have before. Lord, may we understand the truth of 1 John where it says that perfect love casts out all fear. May your love, the love now and the love that is yet to be revealed to us, May it cast out all fear in our lives. May we be filled with the Holy Spirit, operating in the full gifting of your Spirit, and be people who are full of faith, full of courage, full of hope. In these dark days, in this perverse and this crooked generation, may we be lights to shine in the darkness. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. We love you, Lord. And if there's any this morning who don't know Christ, this is your moment. You don't have to do anything strange or weird. Just where you're sitting right now, just lift your hand up to the Lord and just say, Lord, please come into my life. Please forgive me, Jesus. Bring your love, your grace, your mercy into my life. Lord, I want to be forgiven and free. I want to walk in a way that's pleasing to you. I turn from my old life and I turn to the grace of God. And Lord, Revelation 21 describes where I want to be and who I want to be. And so if that's you this morning, I want you to rejoice in the fact that your name is now written in the book of life. Your name is now written in heaven and you will be with him forever and ever. For those of us this morning where Maybe the Spirit has spoken a word of either encouragement or correction. Just embrace it. Speak to the Lord and allow him to fill you and to move you forward. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand and worship the Lord with one last song.